Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Me with Bob. Bob, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? I am Bob Hertzberg. I am an uh, author, um, actor, performer, playwright, citizen of Brooklyn, New York. A man uh, of many talents. A man of many talents. <laughs> there you go. But uh, when it comes to your book, I came across one of your books that was the FBI, and I would say, I wouldn't say an invasion into Hollywood, but the FBI in movies. And I'm just curious, when did you decide to even write about the FBI and their involvement into film? Well, that's interesting because my first book um, um, from Pulp, uh, what was that? Uh, shooting scripts from Pulp Western to film was basically about Western novels and uh the movies made from them. So I went in this radically different direction here. Uh, I realized there were very few books about the premier federal law enforcement agency in this country. There seemed to be that way. I mean, um, FBI was everywhere in the movies, especially in the golden age of Hollywood, 1930s, 1950s. They had an enormous influence on the films that featured FBI characters. Um, You've always seen the cops and robbers movies, but the FBI movies were so different. You know, cops in these movies were never as good as the FBI. The FBI was always, you know, their number one premier law enforcement agency. We have the right answers. We get the job done. You know, unlike the police, it could be crooked once in a while. You know, every once in a while, a movie had that, you know, but but not Hoover's boys. You know, he had enormous control over uh, over Hollywood and Washington, D.C. When, when it comes to Hoover's controls over Hollywood, where like I know about the Hollywood 10. I know about the invasion of looking for communists. But I mean, my brief introduction on their screenplay, I mean, now I start looking back at all the Hollywood movies that happen to deal with FBI agents coming in. And it was like this elite task force team that was like going to that's when he called in the big guns. And now I'm like starting to look at it. And I'm like, oh, my God, they really kind of like brainwashed us in a sense to think like. And I don't know if that was a, if that was Hoover's tactic, if that was his plan. I mean, I've learned a di probably a different side of Hoover than most people know. Well. <laughs> this is a side of J. Edgar Hoover. Basically, he wanted uh, a very homogenized, very clean living world where there's really nothing wrong going on, no what he would term depravity, uh, filth, what he would term filth, you know, uh, everything along super G rated lines. And he um, basically, when a movie had to come out about the FBI, he made sure that everything was, well, how can I say this? Um, his obsession with perfection. And that, that extended to people. People who were in films featuring FBI characters were investigated to the ninth degree. They were investigated if there was anything wrong in their uh, backgrounds, you know, communism, uh, homosexuality, 
uh, <laughs> former bank robber, anything like that. You weren't in any of those films. Wait, they were looking for homosexuality in a person's background? He did, yes. The FBI did do that back then, yes, very much so. Um, well, you got to also... You got to also see that there was no accept, no real acceptance of homosexuality in those days. Hollywood knew sometimes who was homosexual and who wasn't. If that came out, forget it. This celebrity's life was was ruined. Their career was ruined. They wouldn't be back on screen anymore. Would it even go to the extent of like having imagined if one of these actors had like a marriage issue? Would that be something the FBI would raise as a red flag of like, we don't want this actor playing as an FBI agent if they have like a, a divorce or if they have something like, you know, kind of, I would say scandalous. Scandalous. There, there was, yes, I would say so because, uh, well, everybody got divorced in Hollywood. You got to expect that. They get married several times. Mickey Rooney has five or six or seven wives to his credit. And Elizabeth Taylor also had about eight or nine, you know, I mean, but they're big stars. And well, Liz Taylor and big star makes the money, you know, too powerful to get rid of. However, if there was something dealing with a divorce where there might be some, um, in Hoover's term, sexual deviancy in the background or too much drinking or something, uh, an assault, some kind of drunken driving, someone gets killed, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Hollywood was that kind of a town in those days. I personally don't think it changed too much, but Hollywood was that kind of a town where a celebrity was still making money at the box office. Certain, certain faults, certain crimes, certain misdemeanors were covered up. And that went with the territory. And uh, if it went out, if it was out in the open too much, if there's too much of a scandal, forget it. That celebrity's career was done. You see it a lot. I mean, all the time from the 1920s, 1930s, Fatty Arbuckle, a talented, very talented comedian, comic genius, if you will. And he, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember the, no, I don't know if you know about this. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, rape charge the alleged rape charge up at this hotel in san francisco and that was back in 1922 i believe and i think he had a final film with paramount in 1923 and too much scandal too much scandal like, goodbye fatty you were out to you were hung out to dry he had about a, a good six-year drought no nothing in films you know he couldn't get a job until maybe 1930 31 you know he made a little comeback in talkies Maybe in Hollywood films, I don't really know the times back then, but today it seems like everybody has some type of scandal or something going on. I would have to think if you're an FBI person looking for a clean cut person, when you find one, you eventually have to like talk to this person be like, hey, we might want to use you for other films with FBI agents. You're going to be our guy. So don't do anything crazy. But then, I mean, we know the FBI and the CIA can, you know, get with media sources. I would feel like any scandal that would try and come out would eventually just be blocked because they need this person. Yeah. I mean, box office says it all. I mean, as long as they're still making money, unless they shot their wives or husbands, it's not going to be, you know, they're going to bury it somehow. Somehow, as long as they're making money, as long as they're productive. Um, and as far as the FBI was concerned, um, they kept files on many, many, many people. Hoover did. Do I think it's any different today? Mm, I don't think they so. Might, 
I don't think so. Eh, I don't think so either. There might be some moral qualms. Hey, maybe we're going a little too far. Why are we keeping a file on uh, Paulie Shore? You know, uh, it's going to go a little crazy, you know. But uh, but back then, Hoover was uh, listen, a good investigative agency, a good intelligence agency does observe people keep a certain amount of files, but not private citizens not really celebrities. You'd acknowledge that someone does something, all right, they're in films and blah, blah, blah. But to go into their backgrounds, I mean, it went through, there were no court orders for this. There was no judge that say, fine, you can investigate these people. This is Hoover's only, this is Hoover's personal uh, preference as far as that went. Did you look into any of the investigations? Like what was the extent of their investigations? I've read some of the documents on like Frank Sinatra and it seems like the relationship with Walt Disney became more of a friend. Um, like towards the end of like the 700 pages, Walt Disney sending personal letters to J. Edgar Hoover. So that's like a more like, hey, I'm in the clean, you keep me in the clean. But then when we talk about investigating people and looking for communists, I start going, well, if they have agents invading Hollywood, that means these agents have to meet with these people people, take them out to dinner, do something and try and be their friend without disclosing that they're an agent. And that's just weird. Well, the studio has the studios had a lot of I can't even say this, uh, how many, but they had certain agents within the studios posing as studio workers, possibly cast members here once in a while to inform the FBI and what's going on with a certain celebrity, what, what's happening on the set, what's happening with the production. If you take a look at some of these documents, they're redacted. Names are redacted. You don't see them. Oh, who's the studio worker? We, we, we were informed by this person and this person. Yeah, those documents exist, but the names are redacted. You don't really know who these informers were at the Hollywood studios, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, uh, you know, people like that to, uh, to let them know about that. But um, Hoover kept files on celebrities who you wouldn't exactly think are threats to the country. Marilyn Monroe, Joe DiMaggio, Abbott and Costello. I mean, you name it. These people were Jimmy Durandi. Of course, Jimmy Durandi did know mobsters because when you play Las Vegas, you play night, that kind of world, the nightclub circuit over there. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these places, these, uh, these theaters, these venues, these gambling casinos, gambling casinos are backed by the mob. So, of course, Hoover not only knew about the mob, he knew about the celebrities playing at these clubs. Sinatra is a good example. Sinatra's friends were mobsters. Uh, not all of them, of course. Um, but he knew Sam Giancana, um, Carlo Traficante. A lot of these guys who eventually were implicated in the uh, um, John F. Kennedy assassination. And uh, so with somebody like Sinatra, his friends were mobsters. They looked at what was going on. The FBI was there not merely to investigate communists. They're supposed to make any um, totalitarian group that included fascists. During the war, they investigated fascist groups. The FBI investigated Ku Klux Klan, though I'll admit with not as much enthusiasm as they did with the Communist Party. Um, and I think they, they hesitated a great deal, uh, tragic hesitation uh, for not doing enough against the Klan while they were committing murders down south during the uh, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, what have you. 
Um, but Hoover had files on a lot of people, files from the KKK, people in the KKK, people to the Nazi party, communist party, investigated everybody. A good intelligence agency is supposed to basically investigate other opposing groups that might be a danger to the country. Hoover went a little too damn far. <laughs> he invested, he, he, he had files on a lot of people, as I just said. Some of these Hollywood celebrities he had files on are ridiculous. Sometimes uh, during the blacklist era, particularly. Um, Wait, what's the blacklist era? The blacklist era was late Cold War, post-1945, the Cold War. It's true that Stalin's Soviet Union was very aggressive. Uh, they now owned half of Europe after the Nazis were beaten. And uh, some parts of Asia as well, after the, Jap after the Imperial Japanese were beaten. So, uh, and already Stalin was kind of saber, uh, saber, saber, saber rattling against the West. So, of course, uh, they decided to investigate communist influence in this country. I think they, I think there were a certain degree of, there were, of course, communist party members in this country. Um, did they, uh, did they put some messages on screen? I think some of their films might have been anti-capitalist to a certain degree, but were they saboteurs and big-time terrorists and traitors? No, they had, no, well, not it, at all. It brings into the real question: if we just, I mean, there's one step with the FBI where it's just like putting, making yourself look good on screen. That's like, I mean, you can just draw an ethical line where, like, if you just want to inflate. I mean, people brag all the time; they don't want to talk about all the down things they got. But then you start going, when did they find something? where it's just going to be incriminating on that person and they use it as leverage on that person. And that's when it becomes an issue. They did that. Hoover did that a great deal. Hoover basically, he, uh, I can't say he bought congressmen, but he was probably the biggest blackmailer in the United States government. He had something, see, Hoover also investigated senators, congressmen, congressional pages, you name it. Everybody around the government, uh, people in, uh, in, uh, in the administrations in power. He had a file on FDR and Franklin, on Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He had files on Kennedy, knew all about his affairs. He had files on Bobby Kennedy, knew about his affairs Marilyn, with Marilyn Monroe and such. That's why I got to ask. We got we to talk about Monroe at one point. You had to see that file and your eyes had to lit up about that, man. Oh, yeah. It's... it's uh, it's incredible. They, they um, I mean, there's a lot of crap nowadays that, uh, oh, the Kennedys had something to do with Monroe's death. I, that's I don't that's buy it ridiculous. Either. I don't buy it. I don't buy that either. Not the Kennedys. Well, no, you might as well blame here's, aliens. Here's the, here's the thing is that if they would have said the Kennedys were involved, that wouldn't make sense because then we, they could just do what they do today, which is use that affair as leverage and get that person to step down from office. That's just a smarter tactic than what happened in Dallas in 63, if you think it was the military. Yeah, I mean, do, do I think, uh, well, you, you go back to like the, K, the JFK assassination. He's, people say it was the government that says this. I think Hoover probably knew more than he was, than he was letting on. Part of the Supposedly Oswald threatened, a, uh, threatened an FBI office. And I forget where, somewhere, uh, I don't know if it's Washington DC or somewhere in Virginia, I'm trying to remember. 
But uh, Oswald already should have been listed as some kind of person to watch. He threatened people at an FDI office, but somehow, you know, it slipped through the cracks. So. Well, they, they watched his mail for four years. And then the week of the assassination, they decided to drop the watch on him. Yeah, that's a hell of a coincidence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, who needs it? Let's watch. Let's see what Marilyn Monroe is doing. Uh, no, Monroe might have been dead by then. Well, but they, anyway, I yeah. think they had powerful. Frank Sinatra is a staple in the culture today. Even today. I mean, his he was in, so influential to so much of music and so much of older generations. Marilyn Monroe was the same. She's on so many kids T-shirts where they don't even know her name, but she's there. And she just was a cultural icon. And now you have a folder investigating this person. You can say it's to sort out if they're a communist or a fascist or something, but eventually you start to dig in, you start to become more a part of their private life. And now you got some really incriminating things. Yeah. Well, people like, uh, man, good old Marilyn Monroe, uh, a very talented, very talented, tormented, tortured woman. And should and left this world far too soon. Uh, maybe it was being with such powerful men, and uh, possibly saw her as some kind of danger or impediment. I, I I don't know why. Well, you know why? If JFK is cheating on his wife Jackie, yeah, that's kind of a scandal. But uh, with Monroe, um, but I would say she was no saboteur. She was no terrorist. Looking into her file. She took pills, you know, I mean, she was tormented. When, you, when she was on the set, like on the set of uh, uh, Some Like It Hot, Billy Wilder wanted to kill her basically because she had to get into the mood to say two words. By that time, Monroe is like at the edge. I mean, she was ready to go into the madhouse. And then she's married to DiMaggio, who you probably got a better reason to really, they had a file on him too. Hoover knew full well that DiMaggio was, was, was beating the crap out of Monroe, that he was, that he, he, was a, he was a wife beater, the great ball player, DiMaggio. I didn't know this. I, oh, yeah, he was. he was. He was beating her, possessive, psychotically possessive. He really was. By that time, I mean, he was, he was uh, I mean, she was Arthur Miller's wife, but it was, uh, but he was still, I guess, loved her. And uh, like I said, he was a very, a very uh, psychotic man, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, he was, you know, just just beats his wife around and all that other stuff. And uh, I, I believe me, I, I've read of DiMaggio. He was a very selfish human being, and he also dealt with the mob. Uh, as which was a particular file that you found interesting? It doesn't even have to be Sinatra or Marilyn Monroe, but you had to have one special favorite in there. Well, let's see. Are we talking about exclusively them or some other celebrity? Are we, um, you, you can go to any celebrity, just one that piqued your interest. Cagney was interesting because it was a file on James Cagney. And uh, Cagney was, in the 1930s, a Depression era, a leftist, very to the left. And he contributed to communist front groups. And communist groups then, as many seditious groups would today, don't call themselves seditious groups or we are communists. They call themselves under charities. And Cagney fell for a lot of that. 
and he thought he was helping workers who were striking out in Northern California or something like that. He was very sincere in his beliefs to help the working man. But the party wasn't really interested in helping the working man as much as using the working man. And, Ka and uh, Cagney contributed a lot. Unfortunately, he got the attention of Hoover and, uh, and other people in the industry. And they said to Jack Warner, head of Warner Brothers, get him to drop these people as friends. And they sat Cagney down and they said, listen, you either stay with, stay with uh, Warner Brothers and we'll make movies or we'll keep you as a star. Or, you know, you can't, you can't be seen with these communists out in, uh, out in Northern California, out in Monterey or what have you, wherever they were having the strikes. You can't contribute to, the, contribute to these people anymore. It's one of the reasons Cagney made Yankee Doodle Dandy in 1942. Because there was a there was a there was a first House and American Activities Committee hearing, circa 1940, except they were not only focusing on communist groups; they were focusing on fascist groups as well. It's 1940, pre-war uh, or pre our involvement in the war, and uh, Cagney was uh, he still had a lot of left left leftists who were friends, screenwriters and such, uh, but. He was in front of these, this committee, House on American Activities Committee of 1940, I believe was um, Senators Nye and Senators Wheeler. They were basically isolationists and they didn't want, you know, to get America involved in the war. And Cagney really did want America more involved with helping out, uh, you know, the persecuted people of Europe. And so um, what happened was um, Cagney got a little scared I mean, these people, they looked at, they looked at uh, Mervyn Douglas, Frederick March, Humphrey Bogart. These people were basically liberal and uh, they hated Nazism. They hated fascism of all kinds, but they were investigated because it felt, because these senators were isolationists felt that these celebrities were trying to push America towards war. So Cagney was one of them. And so what they did was um, the investigation of Cagney kind of scared him in 1940. By another year and a half or so, by 1942, he made Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is very patriotic, very flag waving. It kind of showed, hey, you know, I get it. I do this movie. They're never going to investigate me for anything else. And it was very interesting because Cagney had also played a... Um, a G-Man, they played a, an FBI agent in uh, G-Man, 1935, Warner Brothers. Of course, Hoover had to investigate him. By this time, Cagney basically stopped contributing to left-wing causes. It was 1935, 1930s. And um, he made this film. And there were other chances for Cagney to play FBI agents again. Even there was a, a screen treatment of him to play Hoover in a, in a film version. But that never took place. Why is, I think Hoover was a little leery by that time. He still had a, a reputation, you know, how could I say it? A lot of his screenwriting friends may have been to the left and such. So, of course, they never had Cagney appear as an FBI agent again outside of that one film. Um, G-Men is a fascinating film in a sense that uh, you have this guy who plays... Um, well, Cagney always played a tough mug, you know, gangster, criminal, tough from the Lower East Side and such. And now they take that same persona and they put him on the side of the law. And that's in the book, too. 
And it was just very interesting how that how that worked out. Very pro FBI film. Uh, very much of a call for the FBI to be armed. Believe it or not, in the um, 1920s, when there was still a division of investigation, the FBI was not armed. If they had to make arrests, they had to go to local law enforcement, which didn't exactly thrill them. But they went to sheriffs and police officers, you know, uh, who could have been corrupt and whatever. And they said, you know, they have to make arrests. The FBI, at the time, the division of investigation, late 20s, early 30s, couldn't make arrests. It was not until around um, towards the mid 1930s when they armed the FBI and they had power to make arrests. So, uh, so Cagney was a very interesting personality to look at. There's also the FBI had, um, Hoover had, what do you call it? The Compic files, C-O-M-P-I-C. Compic files were Communist Party infiltration, Communist Party in Hollywood, what have you. <laughs> I have to get it right. Uh, but anyway, it had files on celebrities, writers, who have you, supporting players, people like that, who were communists or who they thought to be communist or who weren't exactly flag-waving Americans, if you want to put it that way. Um, people were slandered. A lot of liberals were slandered. Uh, actors like Edward G. Robinson, uh, poor Canada, Canada Lee, talented African-American actor. And he came up 30s, 40s, uh, dynamic stage performer. And uh, Hoover slammed him as he's communist. Um, he made the outstanding cry, the beloved country later on. That was his last great film. And uh, Mervyn Douglas, another liberal actor. They like slammed him with a the, with the communist brush right off the bat. Um, I got to think being an actor coming to Hollywood and you're like, oh, it's going to be so tough to get my acting gig. And then now you got to worry about the fucking FBI just in basically just investigating you on every single thing and making sure you're not a communist. I mean, you got to think you would be on the basis of your talent. But then I'm, I'm starting to wonder, how, did you come how when you were looking through the documents, did you come across how connected the FBI was like you've named Warner Brothers already? I knew about Disney, but I'm questioning everything about my childhood and wondering if all these things that made all the movies I loved is just a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, a lot of more a lie, uh, unfortunately, and many of them are a lie to this day. But uh, but actually, when you take a look at the uh, <clears throat> at the files again. Hoover had enormous influence as far as that goes. He, um, and not only Hoover, there was a censorship agency, the, uh, you know, the production code office, which uh, was started by uh, former postmaster general Will Hayes in the uh, depression era and uh, like early talkies, early 1930s, and uh, was taken over by Joseph, e, Joseph I. Breen. Now, uh, Breen, was basically uh, <laughs> uh, a bit of a reactionary, let's put it this way. He was anti-Semitic, racist, you name it. Uh, and quite the, uh, quite the square. And uh, you can tell by that gesture. Over no, there, right? I, I got, I got that I'm you. not doing triangles, I'm doing squares, you know, mm -hmm. rectangles. Uh, and uh, things had to be pretty clean living as far as that one. Um, very much of a very much of a uh, doctrinaire churchgoer here, 
meaning certain Catholic doctrines had to, you know, filter down into what we saw in the movies. A, a person couldn't commit suicide on screen from like July 1934 till I would say 1953. That's when the production code basically died, was watered down. Uh, they couldn't even screen... do sex scenes or anything like that either. I think the, the original code was that you had to have your foot on the floor. And then eventually movies just started leading up into this aspect of like a train going through a tunnel when the scene was coming up, you know, smart stuff. Oh, like yeah. That. Hell, I mean, well, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, I got to say, I, I haven't seen trains going through tunnels. It's very interesting. And I think it were through a, a New York City subway train it would go very slowly. Uh, but but anyway, the um, no, what they do is cut to the fireplace. You know, it's just cut to the fireplace. It's like it's like, oh, a romantic moment that insulates the Yule log. You know, it's like, you know, right off the bat. Oh, I wonder what's happening. I guess their logs are burning. Or rain outside. Rain outside is a big key. Gotcha. Rain on the window pane. Always rain on the window pane. Yes. Yes, indeed. But um, yeah, no sex. No, no long kisses. Can't have long kisses. That's 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 verbatim. No, no, no tongue. People didn't have tongues in those days. No tongues. Uh, no tongues. No long kisses. No nothing like that. Um Embrace, kiss, goodbye, you know. Oh, I know no sex if you're, you know, man and woman. No sex until marriage. Had to have marriage first. Marriage first, then, you know, and then sex. And if you did imply, imply, on screen imply, sex before marriage, you're gone. You're dead meat. Goodbye. Somehow you die. <laughs> That's it, basically. It's a, oh, yeah, people were killed off on screen routinely. If, they, if there was an implication of sex on screen. You cut to the damn log and they're not married. Forget about it. I mean, you're, you know, start digging the grave already, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, so with this all, all powerful censorship organization looking over you, the production code office and, and companies, film companies had to have the production code seal. You have the seal, you can make the movie. Scripts had to be submitted to the production code office. All right. Breen and his minion of bigoted censors <laughs> had to narrow-minded censors had to look at the scripts. Sorry, I can tell you the now hundreds and hundreds of letters I have read through the production code office <laughs> where, where, where Breen or someone who speaks for Breen is saying, well, you know, the idea looks good, but you know, I, I think there are certain things we will object to. You know, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's too much, uh, too much in this whipping scene, uh, too much violence. Uh, cut down the uh, garroting, uh, you know, cut down the cut down the stabbings, the shoe, you know, all this stuff. Cut down the violence. Gangster films couldn't show much violence. Gangster films after Breen took over were basically um, we can uh, the cops can fire at the criminals as much as possible, but the criminal can fire maybe once or twice. That's kind of unfair, but anyway, you know. It explains it. the stormtroopers. The uh, stormtroopers. Uh, <laughs> so it's like bang, bang, and, uh, you know, that's it. They, you know, they die. Good always has to win. Cops always have to win. Do you think that this makes up a lot of, like, what the template for movies are? Because I always complain. It always seems like movies are just repeating the same old bird over and over again. They don't really branch out of the thing. And for the longest time, there was always cop movies. And then eventually there was this point where it was like, we have a rogue cop. 
and this rogue cop, it has the notes of an FBI agent, has like the the awesome moves of like a secret agent or something like that. Usually people would assume that, but he was able to do the job effectively, but not in the right way. Like sometimes the law has to be dirty. And it's just like when I have to think that this template that we've had for so long officially might have just been because they they have to work off of a basic thing in the first place. They can't really branch out. I mean, imagine you had a I mean, some movies now it even draws the line. But Platoon was an FBI file I found on Oliver Stone's film Platoon where they were like, this could look bad for us. And I'm just like, that's interesting like that. I mean, that explains a lot of like people have to go overseas to get funding on stuff. Uh, I think that's partially the case. Let's face it, we're not the only ones into, I mean, America's probably less censorship oriented today than a lot of other countries. Uh, I would say that's, a, that's for sure. Every film industry in, the, in this planet, if they have a film industry, has some kind of censorship office, government censorship or what have you. It depends on what degrees. I would hate to make, I, I would hate to move a, Mm, I'd hate to make a movie in Turkey. Uh, they will, they will do everything. Well, I'm a Jew, and if I were a Jew in Turkey, it wouldn't work anyway. Uh, they'd probably throw me in prison for about 50 years. Uh, as it is here, oh, you're talking about Platoon. All right, Oliver Stone's a bit of a crazy man anyway. <laughs> but as it is, Platoon was a very good film, I would say, as far as that went. It had a good sergeant and bad sergeant. It had good and bad. Um. You will probably have somebody in the military looking over, not the production necessarily, but curious about the script. All through, from Hollywood, from practically its birth, if, if, a, if a filmmaker was making, a studio was making a film about the military, about World War I, something like that, previous battles, something like that, they would go to the military. Why? Because shooting on battleships and in army forts saves the production company money. So they need the military. Every branch of our military, and as I say, I'm sure militaries all around the world, have some uh, liaison office to the Hollywood studios. There is an office from the United States Navy that overlooks that, you know, that connects with, with the Hollywood studios, the Army, the Air Force, everywhere. Every government agent has some, every government agency has something like that. The CIA, the FBI, fine, we're from the Office of Public, blah, 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 with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We, we perused your script, blah, blah, blah. The military was like that as well. You couldn't, if you wanted that hardware on your screen and you want to save money from building you know, phony tanks or something like that, or you needed planes to fly. And those planes, those films, most of them are not Hollywood planes. <laughs> those are military planes, maybe dressed up, but they are military planes. You need cooperation from the military. And back in those, I, I wrote about this in, in Hollywood and the military bureaucracy. They oversaw a lot of that. There was censorship. Teen Mutiny was one of, like the, one of the first films to really kind of cast not too good vibes on the United States Navy. Even though its author, Herman Woke, who uh, woke, who uh, woke, who, who uh, wrote the bestseller, The Cain Mutiny, was a naval officer and he loved the Navy and he got input from naval officers and he published this book. And 
un unfortunately, when they started to make it a film, the Navy said, ah, ah, we don't like this mutiny business. And uh, they didn't put a halt to production, but they tried to slow it down. You know, they wouldn't respond to the producers. Uh, Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn and such. And it took a while before they finally got the, you know, I mean, it took a year or two, a couple of years. The project was like from 1950 or so when they had the, the novel out as a bestseller. And it took a few years and they finally got it filmed. Uh, from Here to Eternity by, by, uh, by James Jones, uh, a soldier, an, inf an infantry man who fought in Guadalcanal, wrote From Here to Eternity. It's a gigantic, gigantic, great book. Columbia uh, uh, filmed it in 1953, became an Oscar winner, an Oscar winner as best picture. But the army gave him trouble. They didn't like a lot of the dirty stuff that was going on there. Uh, at the time, the Breen office didn't like it either because, my God, you got to, the soldiers are going to whorehouses and the soldiers did it and all this other stuff. And you, no, 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 no. You got to cut that off. Donna Reed's character is a prostitute, blah, blah, blah. They kind of imply that she's a hostess, you know. So they had to uh, compromise to a certain degree, but it won the best picture. It was groundbreaking. It showed the army. The wartime army, this was set in 1941, pre, just before Pearl Harbor. And Pearl Harbor happens like the last third of the film. And uh, it showed our army that we already always venerated for all those patriotic films during the war, shows them as very dark and, uh, you know, brutal. They brutalize their own sometimes. And that's what Joan's uh, book was about a great deal. And uh, that certain segments of, of the army could have certain fascist-like behavior in training and such. It wasn't, you know, as lucid it was become, you know. Did, did you ever have any questions on, like, the untouched area when it came to some of the war films that came out? Like, I've seen the Pearl Harbor film. Um, it's, like, feels like three hours long. But there's, like, a bunch of star cast and, like, Ben Affleck's in it and a bunch of people. I'm just like, well, they definitely got paid a lot of money to do this. Like, this is definitely a government film. And it is really good. But I think it's because it was meant to be, like, this is – you got to make it great or we're not doing it. But then you get into the untold aspect of things where you get to – films about the Vietnam War where this is like an untouched area. Well, I wouldn't say untouched, but untouched as in there's not a whole lot of influence of like, we got to make sure we're the good guys. There's any Vietnam movie I've ever seen. There's the own their own soldiers fighting against themselves. There's they talk about torching homes with people inside of it. And this really kind of dark side of like, I guess, American government really starts to come out. But it seems like that's the one ground that really was like the least amount censored. Like people know what happened over there. So we can try and lie about it, but then they're just going to call us out on our BS. So we might as well just make it honest takes about some things. Very true, as far as that goes. Might as well come out in the open because they're going to say that to us anyway. Uh, first of all, it goes beyond even what the government will uh, <coughs> censor or not censor or allow the soldiers to do. Every soldier, no, I can't say every soldier. When soldiers are in that kind of combat situation, I hate to say it, you're going to have something like that where there's going to be some out of control situation. Shots fired, and things are going to go wild. Things are going to go crazy, and massacres. And you're going to, I'm this. I'm this has gone back to the Sand Creeks massacre of of, of the uh, of the late 19th century. Uh, 
the massacre of the Arapahoes out in the uh, out in the um, out west by the uh, by the uh, Colorado uh, militia. <laughs> Was it Colorado? Anyway, uh, but when you're in that kind of tense combat situation, this is what's going to happen. Um, the Viet Cong were out there. I'm not excusing anybody, but the Viet Cong were like blowing a lot of their comrades away, you know, of American troops, blowing their people away. Villagers, to a certain degree, weren't going to talk to the Americans if they knew what was good for them. There's no good or bad here. They're scared. You can't blame them for being scared. You can't blame them for wanting to protect their families. But it's not the point of view of the American soldier who's had his buddy blown to bits or impaled on some, on some Viet Cong booby trap. They're going to get angry. And unfortunately, you know, to a certain degree, racism took over. They saw these villagers as non-entities and My Lai Massacre. Lieutenant Callie and all that, and Captain Medina and all those bastards, you know, they, 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 they all, they went crazy. About 500 thrown into a pit, you know, like, uh, like the Baba Yar massacre, what Nazis did to the Jews out in uh, Ukraine. And, uh, and unfortunately, in a situation like that, where they're really under the gun, militaries around the world might, if they feel entrapped, are going to get into that situation where they're just going to be a little more hair trigger than others. And this is, a, this is a rule of combat. Unfortunately, you got to remember you're an American. You got to remember, wait a minute, you're fighting for a democracy here. Maybe they're hiding the truth, but you can't kill them. You can't assault them. That's not damn right. <laughs> so as far as, as far as that, that's concerned, Armies, militaries all over the world are going to have this kind of problem when they're in a tense situation. They're boxed in. They have nowhere to go, no win situation. Their body, their bodies are being blown to bits. And, uh, well, they start killing the villagers who are not going to tell them where the enemy is. And, uh, well, that's not right either. But uh, Well, the, the reason why I brought that up was because whenever I, I – I, there's a movie called, like, The Five People You Meet in Heaven – and there's a guy basically dies and he's got to go back through his life and all the moments. And one of the moments is the Vietnam War. And what he thinks was they basically after he was like in his 20s when it happened, but then he was like 80 when he died. So he's got to re like remember 60 years of like repressing this thing where he was like, there was no person inside that home that I burned down. And then it turns out one of the people that he meets in heaven is the girl and he gets to wash away her burns and stuff like that. But in this Vietnam section area of like just any film really in general, you, it doesn't leave you feeling like, yeah, America, or it doesn't leave you feeling mad at America. It just leaves you confused as hell to what was going on there. It's like this, this state. And that's why I said, it's like the untold kind of like the dark. It's just, it's just clouded. It leaves you kind of like, you don't really feel anything but more confused. And then you get like um, a movie, I would say that really kind of examined this for me was the movie Hot Fuzz, where it was in England and it was, it was supposed to be a comedy, but it was about UK cops. And they were, the whole town is back like nuts. And they start realizing it's all a cult and everything like that. And these two cops have to go against this town. But when they had the American cops come in, like the American intelligence agency come in, they were dumb. And they were like this like stupid thing that I usually never saw over here on this type of footage and i start realizing it's like they're not really throwing jabs at each other but you are getting like of course your own country is not going to make themselves look bad in films they want to come off as strong but it's it's like that everywhere it it 
it is like the. I mean, listen, we've seen American films where American cops are going to look stupid anyway. Naked Gun's the best. Oh, Naked Gun's an out and out comedy. You don't really take it seriously. But there are there are dramas. There are dramas, melodramas, action movies where American law enforcement is not going to look too good. There are people who just, no matter what happens, <coughs> American law enforcement is not going to look too good to some people. Good example, Die Hard. Die Hard is like, uh, <coughs> I, I, I would think Die Hard would be a movie for the posse comitatus. You know what I mean? I've never as seen it. As far as, all right, po- all right. Die Hard is a movie where, where uh, Bruce Willis, uh, who's going through his own hell not right now, poor guy, uh, Bruce Willis uh, stars. Oh, yeah. This uh, this gang is taking a bunch of people hostage up in a high rise tower. All right. And uh, federal authorities come in. FBI comes in every, you know, FBI assault troops and they get blown to bits. They get shot to pieces, blown to bits. They're bossy, arrogant bastards as portrayed in Die Hard and its sequels. And uh, it's the people, you know, these people who are symbols of the state who are uh, just arrogant bastards who deserve to be blown away. That's what the film is basically saying. Who do we rely on? We rely on a, ta- a tank top wearing, Uzi, Uzi wielding uh, maverick cop played You're by Bruce right. Willis. You're damn right See? we do. Yeah, right. There's <laughs> a box office hit, by the way. But I said this is like probably a po- you know this this movie's a poster child for somebody like the Posse Comitatus and uh, other reactionary groups out right, out there because they're a- it's anti-state, it's anti-federal authority. But the thing is, they're going to have to rely on the law. It can't always be a private individual taking down everybody because you know what happens then? Then to become Lee Harvey Oswald, they cross the line that there's something else. I mean, the Maverick cop could easily cross the line into private assassin. That's why I've always looked at it. I mean, I said to myself, yeah, this is action and this is fun. I like Bruce Willis and all that. But it's like kind of crossing the line. It's like pro-loan loan law enforcement. How can I say it? Loan gunman kind of thing, you know, where they're the ones who settle the problem. Well, there's this a rolling in the law. Usually in these movies where they bring in like an individual cop who goes rogue or he's like one of those bad of the bone doesn't follow the rules type turning your badge on my desk. He still has an authority person that he like talks to, but it's not really like I'm your boss. You listen to me. It's more like they also have a pre-existing relationship, which is kind of like so he still abides. He really never goes all out. Maybe he'll go rogue. But towards the end of the movie, there's like a scene where it's like we couldn't have done it done it without you chief and then there's like a handshake and then there's like well we're glad to have you back on the force and there's always like that type of bring around because usually it's in the beginning or the end of the movie people get the main takeaways yeah because it's got to be that way i'm always going to be you know i mean in uh you gotta eventually the cop can't just you know blow away everybody he places he can blow away somebody who's trying to blow away him fine but you know you always got to go back to the law because the cop breaks the law. He's no longer a member of the law. Then he's like, well, it's you've crossed the line. You can't do that. This is America. You just can't do that. You got to follow the law. And if he does his own little <coughs> unorthodox method of doing this, 
as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else or really, you know, harm anybody else. Like I said, he, um, as long as he goes back to the law, fine, chief, I can't, you know, like what you said, you know, he's always got to, um, okay, it has to have a certain granting of authority. So this is the way it is. This is, this is the law. This is America. You got to go that way. Otherwise you become, how could I say it? You know, if you're going to, you're going to take law into your own hands, then you become a vigilante and the vigilantism against the law. Has this changed your movie experience at all? I feel like now that you're able, like, cause I mean, I'm, when I made a, a film for the first time, I noticed everything, the camera angles, my whole perspective of just watching a movie change. And then once I started learning more about military influence and stuff like that, it's not like I sort out propaganda, but I'm starting to notice it a lot more like, Oh, so the dad's just a military chieftain that just got, you know, he's been at war for a while and nobody's heard of him. I'm guessing this is going to be, and it kind of pitches the rest of the plot or pitches the rest of the direction of this character that you really don't know about. But then there's like a weird thing where it turns the dad. He thinks this military general that comes home turns out to end up be like a bad guy who's working like deep connection mafia. But then usually later in the movie, they go, well, he's not really a bad guy. He was undercover. And it's like, okay, so you bring it back. Uh, that'll probably happen a lot of pictures, but there's always the movie where, Hey, you're just a bad guy who's a mafioso and all this other crap, you know, no, no, no. You know, real life is not as neat, you know, it's going to be that way. Sometimes it may be some, <clears throat> someone could be an intelligence agent, uh, deep infiltration, as you will, a double agent. Uh, I would say, yeah, like what you said, I've been looking at uh, propaganda in film since I was a teenager. Uh, I mean, really, I've noticed that right off the bat. Oh, that's my upbringing. Anyway, uh, my parents were always into I was reading newspapers when I was teen, when I was a teenager. So I always read certain things in films. I mean, you can see that very easily if you really uh, of a, was of a mind to. But as far as uh, as far as what you're saying goes, yeah, they always have to have that happy ending or something. I'll tell you something. From a personal point of view, I would like a happy ending. I don't go to movies to see the damn, you know, real life and everybody's, you know. Sad and depressed and paying bills. Uh, yeah, really. I mean, okay, let's make a movie about somebody having problems paying their hospital bills. You know, it's like a big box office, I tell you, you know, really. We just got to stop uh, making musicals. That's got to stop. I just can't. I can't get through a musical. Oh, musicals, ah, the old musicals are fun. They don't make them anymore, really. I mean, what are they, what musicals you had really recently? I, I don't know. That's Les Miserables with Anne Hathaway and Hugh Jackman. Ah, The Miserables, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't say I've seen that one. Uh, as of recently, I, I remember the Nicole Kidder one, Moulin Rouge. Uh, that's always fun. Uh but that word didn't sound fun at all. That word did not sound fun. Mulan Rouge. <laughs> no, it's a remake because there was a Mulan Rouge made by John Huston in 1954. This is a musical version of uh, of that. And uh, I'd have to know more about the original tale anyway. But uh, you don't like musicals. Uh, 
<laughs> the musical featuring the FBI and terrorists. I got to see that in one of these days. Um, well, they've al we've some... always influenced media. There's always been influence to so newspapers before television, radio, so much of it. I mean, it's just when you start looking at it and actually now you know, I guess you're, you're more knowledgeable about it. You're able to point it out like very simply. Like I just thought of this when I was talking to you. How many people in a superhero movie are like friends or connected to someone who's like a secret agent or some part of government corporation or something like that it's like it's a movie about the green lantern but oh he's got to work for the air force or he's got to have this and i start going how much of comic books had to be influenced a little bit on the aspect of being connected with this agency well you take a look at you know the, the superheroes of old you take a look what was superman was a reporter for the daily planet the flash was i think a reporter when i stopped reading comic books at 12 uh, remember, <laughs> Spider-Man was a reporter too. I mean, you know, get, you know, getting into the mass media was apparently part of the, uh, you know, part of the job requirements of being a superhero. Apparently, and uh, let's say, uh, let's see. Um, I'm trying to remember. Even uh, Batman, he's, Batman's friends is uh, what is it, Commissioner Gordon? Yeah. Of course, it's part of the part of uh, being hooked to authority. You know, Batman has to be hooked to authority to a certain degree. Commissioner Gordon, you got that red phone over there. That's that's not Pac Bell. That's not Verizon. It's okay. You can call me anytime you want. It's free of charge. You know, and you do it with your iPhone. I don't care as long as it's red. And you call up Bruce Wayne, and he slides down the pole with Robin and all that other stuff. And he's a millionaire. He can afford to build all this stuff in the Batcave and all this scientific hardware and nuclear reactor, which must be a surprise to the government that he has one. And uh, but like I said, you look at the occupations of all these people. Yeah, they're tied to somebody because you have to be tied to some authority figure of good over there. We're assuming the reporters like the, uh, the Daily Planet, you know, Clark Kent, Daily Planet, The Flash. <laughs> I don't know what the hell Green Lantern was. He worked, uh, he worked for the Air Force. He did. He worked for the Air Force. So okay. Hal Jordan gotten into a uh, airplane accident, or his dad got into an airplane accident that got him into being a part of the Air Force, and then eventually, I don't know. It's it's, it's a long. There's a lot of people that are connected either to military or some type of newspaper organization. I, I used to read Green Lantern when I was a kid. I quickly forgot it. I read Green Arrow, and maybe I like the color. I don't know. Uh, all this stuff and uh, Daredevil. Green Lantern's uh, my favorite. So that's a personal favorite. Well, Green Lantern. Okay, it's your favorite. Okay, didn't mean to cast aspersions. <laughs> as, as, uh, you know, Incredible Hulk. What did he do? He was a scientist working with the military. Yeah. Uh, well, Superman's the best, the newer one with how, uh, Henry Cavell, where the military pulls up, I guess, mid of one of his flights and says, you know, they have him under arrest and Superman's under arrest. And they're like, we need to get him on control. He needs to be, you know, part of the American. And then he breaks the cuffs and says, I can do this whenever I want. I don't work for you. And that was like the first time he ever saw this like resistance aspect where it was like one person actually guarding the planet, not this aspect of just guarding America. Well, unfortunately, a lot of the government is a uh, bureaucracy from, from one agency to another a bureaucracy. Uh, there are bureaucracies all around the world, not only our government. So the thing is, in the, in the films of old or comic strips of old, they were basically a benign force there. Later on, they became more of an ego-driven bureaucracy, as I say. Um, and you know a government agency is going to want to know if somebody has this much power, this individual, gee, 
Why do we know about this guy? Find out about him. Maybe we could put him under control. I hate to say it, but that's probably a natural inclination of any government anywhere. If someone's going to be able to fly through the sky, he can work for us. You know, that kind of thing. It's, it's a natural inclination. It's not much, it's not power driven stuff as, as much. But um, later on, the government looks a little darker. All these agencies that that know the superhero look a little little a little darker now. It doesn't mean they're totally bad. It's just it's just the way of the world. This guy can fly. This guy can break through walls. He can work through us. We should know about him. Batman, whoever, Superman. Well, do you think with the evolution of media, how we've been, I guess, with the censorship, it seems like there's not really a lot of that gets censored anymore just because we can show sex on screen. We can show a bunch of stuff on screen. Do you think with that evolution, it also changed with the uh, the military as well, too? You're seeing more, I guess, corruption aspects in movies. You're seeing a lot more, a more realistic scenario than just like the, how do you do? You know, your, your, your neighbor's Mr. Rogers and he's an FBI agent. You know, it's not that anymore. It's not really so like it just seems like it's kind of evolved with the times because I, I don't know if it's just we stopped caring as much about it um or it's just the evolution of how the films go like we expect that there's going to be some type of flaw one of these characters have i think they try to humanize a lot of superheroes nowadays they've uh, i think marvel comics was there ahead of dc <coughs> where they tried to humanize them what i don't like it with the superheroes and some of these things uh the films uh, is they try to make it soap opera like I, I don't I don't want to go that much into their backgrounds. Just cry, now. Bob. Just cry. <laughs> That's all we need you to do is cry. <laughs> I cry when I when I see how much I have to pay admission at the uh, <laughs> box office. That's when I cry. That's all right. Senior citizens pass here. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, we, we we've humanized superheroes, and we've seen something more darker in those forces of good like Commissioner Gordon or somebody like that, who's the authority figure dealing with these superheroes. But they're not totally, totally bad. Believe me, I've, I, I, there are a lot worse governments who've doing a lot worse, you know. I mean, if Superman were working for Turkey or Iran or a lot of them guys, I, I, I don't think I'd like to deal with that. It's just, uh, how could I say it? Um, they would really put the totality spin on something like that our government could probably deal with the superhero well that's a premise anyway in these comic books and movies but the thing is at least we have not gone to the point where we're as bad as the totalitarians they'd send superman out to wipe out every jew on the planet if that were the case or every or any other minority or what have you if that were the case from one of those countries um did you see when john cena apologized to uh china um because he recognized taiwan as a country he said about his new movie fast and furious when it was out he was like taiwan's gonna be the first country to see my film and china just lost it they were like nope we're gonna ban it and he had to come out and i think he spoke he spoke fluent uh man i mandarin i think he spoke fluent mandarin on screen and apologized to them for wrecking because they don't recognize that but you notice that everywhere in other cultures if I'm, i think it was um dr strange uh the universe of the newest one that came out the multiverse of madness or whatever it's called there was a couple of things that you know is like other people just had problems with they were like we can't have that here we don't want to show that on our screens it's not going to be accepted here and i think 
depending on the obviously the size of the country, Marvel kind of bended to the will of it. I think one of the countries that complained about it was kind of small and they were like, we don't really care. We're not going to change that detail. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a shame that um, this kind of, um, if you will, fascistic censorship is still around today for many countries. Uh, Communist China being one of them, unfortunately, who can control the content of a Hollywood film and say we don't like it. North Korea could say, what the hell was that film? Oh, they made a big stink about it. The interview. The interview. The interview. They went uh, ballistic. They went, no, 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 no. What, are you, what, what are you doing? You're, and you're the CIA influenced that movie. And what they did afterwards is even more nuts. They took hard drives of the copy of the film, stuck it to helium balloons and flew it into the other person's country. And then those people stuck it in their computers. And there was a whole article about people that were being killed for sticking that thing in their computer. Well, I would say that was clever of the CIA to do that. It's <laughs> crazy, on, though. It's just like, oh, my God. On the other hand, James Franco. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how else were they going to do it? They weren't, you know, it, it's sure to find. Let the, to spread the freedom, to spread the word of freedom is okay as far as, 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 far as anything. It's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not like you're bombing them into a, worshiping us. You're spreading the freedom, spreading the ideas. Fine. You know, that's, you know. Killing anybody who popped that into their computer, that is wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I mean, well, North it, Korea, just, yeah. it just makes me question. Like, I don't want to go into the whole North Korea thing, but it just makes me question more when I watch the movies about stuff where I'm like, oh, my God, like, you don't realize that a simple com comedic laugh that I got at first. And then I learned what happened afterwards. It was just like, holy, it's like you just start to realize, like, wow, you got a big influence. Now, if you're a director and you see that that just happened, you're like, okay, I'm going to be less likely to take any influence from any military. I might as well just make a Bob Ross movie, you know? And even that was dark on Netflix. I saw that, and they realized what they did to his character, the lady that owns the rights to Bob Ross's name. His son made a documentary about it. They've been suing in a lawsuit for like six, seven years. He doesn't get a single cent of any of Bob Ross's money or anything. And it's just so dark. You're like, Jesus, can I get one thing that doesn't end with like a puppy dying or just something that completely just ruins my day? Uh, first of all, if you if you give me a film with a puppy dying, you're on my death list. I, I don't Marley want stuff and me. like that. Marley and me. Man, I love dogs and I will not tolerate that. Neither with my wife, Colleen, but as it is um, or kittens. But um, it's amazing the influence that another country, totalitarian or otherwise, will have on a filmmaker today as far as, as far as that goes. This is not new. This is not new. In my, in my, my recent book now, uh, Imperial Japan on Film, Japan, even to the post-war years, would have a certain amount of influence on our, for instance, you've heard of Torah, Torah, Torah. Mm-hmm. It's basically, that was made in 1970, 20th Century Fox. I, I call it uh, Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor without the, without the dumb romance. Uh, basically, it was that, you know. And Pearl Harbor, the script, was looked over by the government of Japan. Back in uh, 2000, 2005, 2006, the government of Japan went through that. And no, no, we don't like that they cut certain things certain phrases, certain things that would uh, attack Japan were cut out. 
certain uh, epithets, what have you. I want to say they didn't say not even racist epithets. These were anti they Japan did not like some of the things the characters were saying that brought to light the sneak attack they had made in 1941. And um, the uh, Kate Beckinsale has a scene where she's talking to her nurse and somewhere in the background, machine, um, uh, machine gun fire from Japanese zeros are ripping someone apart. The government of Japan insisted cut that scene. You had to water down the attack on Pearl, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And this was, we're talking about Japan of a later day, the 21st century. And it was still a graphic ass movie too. Still graphic, but not as graphic as it could be. No one's ever gonna come back to the graphic to the atrocities of Pearl Harbor. Sailors, you know, you know, American sailors were jumping off their boats, jumping off the Arizona into boiling water. Water superheated because the fuel from the bombed ships was making the was making the water superheated. They were they were already on they were already like burning so burning sailors were jumping into the water with oil. So of course that set them on fire even more. Yeah, I went to Hawaii to go see the memorial and everything is when I went up there. It's a, a very impactful thing. And even when if you think you're not a patriot, if you go there just experience just being around that, your whole vibe shifts. It's just a different, you really soak in the damage and just the pain that are like literally instilled into the walls and of that memorial that's there, um, which I think is, it's a, it's a good thing. Like you got to keep a balance in a lot of things. Like a lot of like my generation, especially really likes to tear up history and really trying to go through it. I like looking at it and then trying to make like, obviously not any influence, just looking at the straight facts of it. Um, and it's hard, especially through historians, probably all fall more a little bit closer to like the government needs to pay. I just think, you know, that we transparency for sure, but it's not just us. It's every single government across the world is doing their own type of influencing campaign. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have a free or a certain amount of free. We have a freedom here. We have that. We have that democracy. Take advantage of it. Get the facts. Get the get all sides. It was about the FBI or, or, or who have you, who have you, what, what have you. But there were other, other governments who might be more mm, sensitive than us. Communist China is an example. Iran, forget about it. Uh, Turkey, places like that. You cannot say anything against the government, even Poland to a certain degree. If you say that during World War II that uh, they had a lot of anti-Semitism during those days or much of Poland was anti-Semitic. If you said that, you will put under arrest. In Poland to this day, that happens. You cannot say that. You cannot say that they were, uh, that Poland actually at some point might have had Nazi-like feelings before the Nazis came in, or that they had pogroms even after the Nazis left. Uh, you can't say that. Um, not that they didn't have pogroms during, but uh, you know that's against the law. Um, so you have to take advantage of that freedom in this country. Open the files. Try as much as possible to get the truth. Um, yes, we have certain agencies. Government agencies are going to want to make themselves look good. The military, Army, Navy, whoever is going to want that. The FBI, the CIA. Hey, this is a natural thing. They're going to want to look good on screen. The American Dental, Society, American Dental Association is going to want the same thing. You know, 
<coughs> doctors, lawyers, anybody, the American Bar Association. But the thing is, it's when it gets to the point where it, they cut off the truth. Well, well, you got to see the whole picture, the whole picture and whether it's pertinent to the subject you're talking about. You know, well, how do you, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous as if you if you uh, have a, a film on the FBI and you don't mention their uh, Hoover's, how got I say it? Hoover's not wanting to investigate the mob. That has been around for the longest time. I mean, that's that's intertwined. He didn't really investigate the mob until the Kennedys came into power uh, in the 1960s. Uh, Hoover never really went after violators of the civil rights, uh, the civil rights, you know, uh, those who attacked the civil rights movement in the 1960s until the Kennedys came into power, even though he had files on, on the Klan. He had files on Klan members, Klan leaders. He knew what was going on. The mob also. He had files on the mob. He just didn't actively, you know, take more of an activist approach to it and do something about it. Um, so, you know, there's that. Um, investigating everybody, as the Bureau did. To this day, they have files which... Uh, well, let's put it this way. The FBI has uh, certain files you can get into today. You go online, the agency will cooperate, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm waiting for my file. I want a file. Oh, you're waiting for your file. If only I were famous enough to have a file on me. I'm telling I you. want a there, 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 file and I want a black van. <laughs> <laughs> a black van trailing you down the street slowly, you know, uh, a windowless van, you know. Um, they have a time when the when the uh, FBI and the movies came out, and my my publishing company, McFarland Publishing and Company, um, the FBI was con contacted McFarland, and I was called by an agent named Ernie Porter. He was in charge of, and I'm sorry if I forget this, Office of Public Media or something to that, which is part of the FBI. And what they do is. Uh, from what I've told by, by Agent Porter, is that they look at, you know, portrayals of themselves. And I got a call at my home in Brooklyn. Hello, this is uh, Agent Ernie Porter. He might have called himself a special agent, I think, and said, um, by the way, you're writing a book about the FBI? I said, I'm writing a book about the FBI and uh, how they're portrayed in film. And he says to me, well, don't you think you could have uh, come to us? And I said, uh, no, I did go through your agency sites. And especially since much of this book is about the past, I'm not talking about the FBI recently, except maybe a few recent movies here and there. But as far as that goes, it's a lot of this past 35, 40 years of the FBI, no, it's past half century of the FBI. And I wrote the book uh, uh, several years ago, last decade. And uh, so these, this is already, your files are already there. I've already gone through your FBI reading room. The files are already there. I printed out a lot of your files, blah, blah, blah. These are your files. You know, <laughs> these files Hoover had already, you know, that you're allowing. I'm not crossing the line here. I'm not coming up with any kind of, you know. It's most of the stuff, like even JFK stuff, um people I got in mind that I'm working on and everything. They're like, I already warned people. It's like, I want to either get a phone call from them. I'm, they have to, it just, 
anything that's a historical thing like that, they have to know what's going on. Doesn't mean they have to fund it. Doesn't mean they have to help you even get it on the network or anything like that. It just means that they have to review any time. And that's not, I mean, that's not a big deal. I can understand that. I mean, you don't want like, there's, there's plenty of stuff out there. I mean, I wish they would make a film on MK ultra that thing that's labeled a conspiracy for the longest time, but we have documents to show that it's real. Who, who, who's this? I'm sorry. MK ultra. Oh, dude, you got to look up that. That's going to, I had a guy on here who wrote a book about it. Stephen Kinzer, Poisoner in Chief, Sidney Gottlieb. It's about the America brainwashing mind control experiments that they did. It's a real, it's, it's a real thing, but it's actually tied in with Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby's psychiatrist was Luis Joyon West. And if you look up this guy's name, he worked for the CIA using LSD for interrogations and brainwashing people. Well, the weird thing about that is the same therapist for Jack Ruby, Joyon West, was also the same therapist for Manson. So you get like these weird, like this guy's name is popping up in a lot of like historically, like really severe, like crazy things. The Manson murders, the JFK case um, later down the road with RFK. You just get it like, why is his name attached to Sirhan? You can go down the conspiracy route of stuff, but I mean, there's a lot of uh, gangster stuff. Uh, I mean, Ruby was a gangster. You find out later on, Jack Ruby was a gangster. Uh, but he was also an FBI informant as well, too. He was running guns in Cuba. I'm sure that's quite possible. Oh, the Bay of Pigs. Then we open up another uh, can of worms right there, right then and there, uh, which JFK gave the green light to. And it looked like they were going to, you know, go forward at that. <coughs> and then JFK said... Uh, uh, you know something this is a little too dangerous maybe we should hold back on this you know as a what what wait a minute we're about to take over blah 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 so it seemed to be a half-ass operation it was like you know no let's pull back there's a little bit uh deeper than that we don't have to go it's a, a lot to do with plausible deniability i'm sure it does yes <laughs> plausible deniability definitely you know and uh i mean we've had plausible deniability since uh Practically every government has plausible deniability since the beginning of time. And it <laughs> works until somebody gets caught. And then when somebody gets caught, it's a real freaking issue. <laughs> I know. I know. It's weird when, when my conversation with uh, Agent Porter is like, okay, I said, listen, my book is not anti-FBI. The book is, the book is it's revealing, it's, 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 it's just revealing or reiterating the facts. It's the facts. We're letting the chip fall what they may. I have no grudge against the FBI. I have no grudge against the CIA or anybody like that. This is the way things happen. And that's putting being put down on paper or what have you. And he said, uh, oh, okay. You know, he's very, he was not nasty, but he's very professional, very professionally, business-like, you know. Um, and uh, that's it. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll read it. And I said, Listen, listen, uh, Agent Porter, I hope you like it and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. You know, no hangups, no anything. It was very professional, very nice. He was he was a nice enough guy, you know, and I, I treated him nice. You know, you talk to guys like that, you gotta, you know, be businesslike, what have you. Not that I've talked to that many of them who have called me up. We have a file on Bob Hertzberg. Like I said, if only we were aged, <laughs> only were famous enough to have a file. You're good, man. I, I really appreciate the time you gave me to be able to talk about this. Like I said, this is a subject I was, I became new to um, from a, another guest. And I, I saw your book and I had to talk to you about it. But 
you given me enough of your time, Bob. Is there a place where people can find any of your links, where people can find your books, your publishing company? If you have a Twitter, I know you got a LinkedIn. Um, I do have a LinkedIn, Bob Hertzberg. Uh, that's me, Bob H-E-R-Z-B-E-R-G. Everybody misspells it. As it is, uh, real first name, hi, I'm. But anyway, um, McFarland Publishing does the FBI in the, mm, the, FBI in the movies. A uh, new one coming out, Imperial Japan on film, which says much of what I told you about at Pearl Harbor. Um, I would say, uh, what else? What else? Revolutionary Mexico on film, McFarland Publishing. Uh, I also write Western novels, and uh, they come out of Wolfpack Publishing. And you can get into their sites too, but it's McFarlandPub.com. You know, McFarlandPub.com or something like that. McFar Look up McFarland Publishing. They're in they're in uh, North Carolina, Jefferson, North Carolina, and they have my books. You could also find them on Amazon.com. Um, you could ask me about them if you wish. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, I will probably get onto other sites. Uh, make a Twitter. People will make a Twitter. Probably be Twitter. I've heard dangerous things about Twitter, man. They're crazy. I, I don't it's, know. <laughs> it's, it's not a safe place to be on it 24-7, but if you're definitely looking for more exposure, um, that's just the best place. Yeah, yeah. My nephew, Mike Sausberg, says the same thing. Uh, have to throw out his name. He's, he's a, a rep, a uh, congressional rep from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, just throw out the name right then and there. He says Twitter is like, uh, you got to have a thin skin for Twitter. You got to have a thin skin, you know, just, just start in lowercase and just go from there, you know? Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to, um, I'm going to link all your publishing companies and everything that you read off in the description. So people can be able to find it. Bob, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.